Amen. Jason, I'm a little bothered by the fact you weren't singing during On Jordan's Stormy. Were you really? Okay. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Beautiful. Welcome to Hope. It's good to have you with us as we worship God together here today. If you have any prayer requests or if you are visiting with us or if you have any other communications you would like to send our way, uh, please fill out this card, drop it in the bucket on the way out, and we will follow up with you accordingly. You may also reach us if you're Zooming in. You may reach us online uh, through our website and send us prayer requests via email, and we will get those circulated to uh, those among us who actually pray. Yeah, so you want, you want that prayer request to go right by me and to the people who actually pray. No, I'm just kidding. I, I pray as well. But uh, all right, what else? We have, uh, if you are Zooming in today and you have little ones, I highly encourage you to print out the lesson plan for today. This is going to be cumulative over the next three Sundays, I believe, and uh, you're going to need a piece of paper, some glue, some table salt, and some watercolors and a brush with which to apply them. And you will, your kids will see one of the coolest things ever in this, this we're going to do a little art project that's going to uh, progress over the next three Sundays, and it's like super cool. In fact, I'm thinking about just skipping out on this and going back with them and doing this because it's really cool. But uh, all right. What else? We have a lot going on around here. We have youth group, and we are not meeting. Is this the beginning of spring break for most of you? Okay, so that's why we're not going to try to do youth group tonight. Sarah, I know you're depressed that we're not having youth group. We're not going to drag you up here, but, uh, you know, you'll get over this. You'll get through it. I promise. I know why are you shaking your head at me? Because I singled you out in front of everyone. Yes, okay. I still love you. Um, so that's, we're going to skip tonight. I'm not sure about next week. There's probably a plan in place that I'm just forgetting. But uh, we will get back with our youth soon to prepare in youth group Bible study for our summer youth sermon series. Um, we have a Tuesday night Zoom at 7 p.m. that is following along with the sermon series. And so we will be looking at... Um, passages in Isaiah that uh, some of which that we cover on Sunday morning will go in a little bit deeper and other passages we will augment between the gaps. Um, so encourage you to zoom in for that Tuesdays at 7. Then we have our next men's night is March 25th and since it's now March which is crazy um, it's, it's fitting to announce that. We have a crawfish boil on Sunday March 27th. So our our men's group is going to sponsor that and do all the work to provide uh, mud bugs for everyone. So um, there you go. And it's the only time that it's okay in church to pinch the tail and twist. Only time. Is that a bad joke? Is that well, when you're eating a crawfish, you, you pinch it right at the tail and you twist. Yes. That's the only time that's okay. Yes. All right. 
Just keep going. All right. Okay. At least you're all still here. I'm just glad about that. Um, okay. What else? Oh. What? There, there is a women's book study going on this evening, starting at 5, right here in the building. However, it's, it's full. There's, there's no more room. So it's, that's just a reminder for those of you who are already in it. I think there's 24 women in this small group, uh, which is awesome. And uh, I think it's just a sign of how ready we all are to gather back together and engage in meaningful relationships in person again. Uh, but that's going on here tonight. Um, as a reminder to those of you who are already in, um, yes. And next Saturday night, I expect you all to be an hour late to church. Yes. And and weirdly, John, it's not it's not as a big of a deal anymore as it used to be because our our smartphones update automatically and wake us up whether we like it or not at the appropriate hour, um, but used to be a big deal, and uh, there you go. So, um, yeah, many years ago, I was doing youth ministry at a church in St. Louis, and it was the, the fallback Sunday, and they were throwing, which happened to be my birthday, and they were throwing a surprise party for me at the normal youth group slot, but I showed up an hour early because I didn't set my watch, and so the surprise was on them. But uh, that's, you know, that's how I roll. Um, so this summer in June, dates are in your bulletin, is our summer youth mission trip to downtown San Antonio. We stay in an old church that's been converted into dormitories with a cafeteria, and they outfit us to go serve and, and uh, repair homes for people who were living at one and a half times the national poverty level, poverty level or lower, and it's just a great week of service and community and, and friendship building, and I encourage anyone who's interested to set aside those dates. We need adult chaperones, we need college kids, we need high school kids, middle school kids, uh, parents, sponsors, chaperones, etc. So for now, just save the dates. And we're not signing up yet because um, the organization that we're working with called Blueprint is trying to get all of their uh, signups into electronic form so that you only have to fill out your name and address one time instead of like seven times. Uh, so we're working on that. And when we have that up and live, we will send that out to you and you can sign up that way um, but that's what's going on those are the dates uh, so please keep that on your calendar if you are at all interested uh, let us know and we will get those uh, electronic forms to you when we have them all right let's have all the important people in the room come down to the front if you are in fifth grade or younger we invite you down for our children's chat at this time Yay, or 12th grade. This is, a, this is an extreme case of senioritis right here is what we're having. I love it. All the important people. And Esther has filled out her response card. Good girl. Can I show that to everyone? 
see what good Christians do? They communicate with their pastor and their church leadership by, via the response card. Oh, and pictures. I love it. You taught your sister how to do fractions? Wow. How old are you? You're eight. You're eight and a half, and you just taught your little six-and-a-half-year-old sister how to do fractions. I'm scared. This is what happens when your dad is an actuary or actuarial scientist or whatever. What do they call you, Will? Yeah, they just call you dad. Do they not call you dad? Do they call you sir actuary? All right. Papa? Papa, Papa Actuary, actuarially, your dad. Okay. All right. Izzy, I need you to repeat a word for me. You ready? Yeah. Dobre. Say, say dobre. Dobre. Zoe, say utra. Can you say utra? No? Say utra. U. Tra. Utra. All right, Izzy, Dobre, Utra. See, that's how you say good morning to the Russians with whom you colluded in the voting at the chili cook-off. Con congratulations on taking second place. I'm actually very proud of you. And you will notice that our first place winner isn't even here this Sunday. He skipped town with the apron. I think that's a little shady myself. Oh, spicy. You wish there was a pie contest? Me too. Yes, that's a good wish, Esther. That's a very good wish. Okay, have you ever seen a desert? How would you describe a desert? Yes. Sandy with lots of cactus. A very dry climate. Yes. What? Mostly hot all the time, except at night. It gets really cold. Yes. It doesn't really ever rain there. They get like all their annual rainfall in one day or two. Yes. You're, you're just agreeing? Okay. So a desert is a dry place. It's often a hot place. Um, and the Bible says that sometimes inside our hearts and our souls, we feel that way. We feel like a desert. We feel like we're all dried up inside and it's just kind of hot and uncomfortable and we're not really thriving spiritually. What happens when you add water to earth? Mud? Okay, I can't argue with that. Yes. Is there grass in the desert? No. 
But if you have earth and water, you can have grass and other things that grow there and mud and trees and plants and flowers. So water brings what? Life. Exactly. Yes. Water brings life. And listen to this. This is, this is from the Bible. It's from the book of Isaiah. You ready? Okay. And God says here, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The thirsty ground becomes springs of water. And grass shall become reeds and rushes. And it's, it's a poem, right? And the metaphor is about our hearts. That when we are dry and not growing, but God comes into our hearts, the love of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. It's like water. And the Spirit of God, through the sacrifice of the Son of God, and the ministry of the Word of God, causes our hearts to grow and flourish and blossom and produce fruit, right? So just like water brings life to land, the Spirit of God, the Son of God, the love of God the Father brings life to our souls, and it causes us to grow and, be, and flourish and be strong and have faith and be able to show love to God and to people around us. So what is the love of God like according to this poem? The, the love of God is like, it's like water. You did. Yes. Exactly. Just like a plant needs water to survive, we need the love of God to survive. Very good. I think you got it. Do they got it, Sarah? Do you get it? All right. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit that is like water for our souls, that you cause us to grow and blossom and bear fruit in this world to show your love to others. Fill these children with your Holy Spirit. Lead them into a deeper understanding of your love for them through Jesus Christ as they open your word and have fun and hope for kids today. Your blessing over them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great time and hope for kids. Will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning? God, our loving Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us this morning, reveal to us uh, those things which we need to give to you and those things we need to gain from your word, that we might not just be those who hear your word, but that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and turn us into those who live out your word every day. We pray, Father, for uh, those aspects of our heart that are blocked and black and bruised, and we give them to you, and we thank you for the forgiveness, the love, grace, and mercy that are ours in Jesus Christ. It is in that hope that we come before your word today and 
pray that you would speak to us. We lift before you those aspects of our lives that get in the way. And we give you relationships in our lives that are strained. We pray for your peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift before you those whom we know and love uh, who are sick or in need of your healing mercies. And we long for their wholeness, and we just pray your healing over them in Jesus' name. We lift before you our country and its leaders at every level of government, elected and appointed, and we pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up this tumultuous world in which we live, and we pray defiantly for peace, that your peace would reign in the midst of all the chaos that is going on today. We pray especially for the people of Ukraine, for your church in Ukraine, for the safety of everyone there. And Lord, that um, your light would shine forth through the acts of your people in that part of the world during this difficult time. Father, we lift up uh, our men and women in uniform all over the world, uh, serving to protect and defend the Constitution under which we have freedom to worship you. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring all of them home safely. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way and just ask that you would watch over them and be with their loved ones as they are apart from one another. And Father, we um, pray for those who have served our country and who've returned home wounded or changed as a result of their service. We pray your healing mercies over their bodies, minds, and souls. Lord, use us, your church, to minister your grace to them and to others. And we pray for your church. We pray especially for the missionaries that we support all around the world. We pray for the church plants that are going on through our denomination in the state of Texas. Uh, and we just pray your blessing over all the places on this earth where your name is praised and glorified and your word is open and alive and moving forth through your people today. Lord, bless the ministry of your word throughout the world. Grow your kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are in the midst of a series of messages through the book of Isaiah. And I should qualify that to say we're not trying to cover every verse of the book of Isaiah, we're sort of, in a way, kind of hitting the high points, trying to um, understand the major themes that are moving through the work of Isaiah. This is an epic uh, piece of literature in and of itself, uh, as it stands in your Bible, the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah are substantial in in quantity, in quality, in their prophetic vision of the Messiah, and in their insight into even our own hearts and what we need from our Creator. And so this journey has been looking at the ways in which Isaiah has weaved the three major themes of his work together from beginning to end. Um, those themes are the idea that our sin causes separation spiritually between ourselves and our God and between ourselves and those around us. That sin causes 
damage and devastation in our lives, and God cares about that, and he wants to move into that wreckage and bring about hope and healing and reconciliation, which brings us to the second theme of Isaiah, which is salvation. So if the first theme is separation, the second theme we see in the book is the idea that God will bring about salvation for his people from the separation that they suffer as a result of their sin. And then the third theme that Isaiah masterfully weaves in and out of this book is the theme of sanctuary, that God gives us spiritually a rest in the Messiah that we cannot find for ourselves in this world, that somehow God has moved through the gift of the Messiah to bring about things that are impossible otherwise, for example, peace. This idea that we, God's people, can be at peace, not just with ourselves, but with our creator and those around us because of what the Messiah has done to deal with the separation that our sin has caused between ourselves, God, and others. And so we've been looking at um, those three themes. You can, you can sort of look at the book of Isaiah that way. It's, it's sort of divided into three parts. Um, that of separation, salvation, and sanctuary. But those themes are also like just drawn through each of and all of those parts of the book. So everywhere throughout this literary work are those three themes. You will see them today in the passage we're going to read, which is from Isaiah chapter 35. And so I'll just sort of set up a little bit of historical context, but... Israel has just uh, finished the reign of a terrible king. He was a complete idiot. He was, he was not a godly man. He was extremely selfish and um, had none of the priorities that we would want from a good leader. Ironically, he was married to an incredible woman, a godly woman who raised a son named Hezekiah who would go on to to succeed his father in the throne of the little kingdom of Judah and be one of the few godly kings in the lineage of the kings of Judah and Israel, just one of a handful. And so we are now at this point in the book, in, uh, from here to chapter 39, we are in the last years of Hezekiah's reign. And God has told Hezekiah in this section of the book, he's told the king, look, the kingdom is secure for your lifetime, so don't be worried about the armies that are knocking on your door. They won't succeed. They won't take down your kingdom. That will happen when your son takes over. And Hezekiah actually says, and you can read this for yourself in, in the book of Isaiah, just keep reading after today, the next four chapters, and he's actually like, oh, whew, thank God, like, I'm safe. Like, I, I don't know how that's okay, but he takes it as a relief that the kingdom will not topple in his lifetime, and, but that it will in, in the reign of his son. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> it's your problem. <laughs> so um, that's kind of where we are in the historical context Isaiah has already prophesied that this little kingdom of Judah, which is the capital is Jerusalem, will 
fall at some point. It will be taken captive and overrun by a foreign army. All of its leaders and intelligentsia will be marched away in captivity, and there will be farm animals grazing in the streets of Jerusalem after that day. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He says that in the wake of that devastation, God will move, his spirit will move, the breath of life will be blown back into the city of Jerusalem, the temple will be rebuilt, hope will be restored, and God will bring about a Messiah who will deal with the sin of the world for his people. And so this is the historical context into which uh, these words are written in Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's just 10 verses, so don't be nervous. But uh, I'm going to start in verse 1 and read all the way through verse 10. Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I'm just glad that even fools can't lose their way on the path of grace. Um, I, I just want you to think for a moment about the way that religion in general works. So the mechanics of, of religion in general, like globally, works this way. There's some kind of deity 
that I cannot see or control. And that deity wants something from me, and I want something from that deity. And so what I'm going to do, or deities, let's be clear, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to figure out what that deity wants. And let's say that it's represented with the variable A. Okay? So I'm going to take variable A and perhaps even variable B, and I'm going to add those together. So variable A might be a monetary offering. Variable B might be some appearance of piety or sincerity on my part. And I'm going to take those two things together, and I'm going to offer them to the deity in the hopes that the deity or deities will perform C on my behalf. And you can insert whatever variable you want there. These are the mechanics of global religion, which is why you hear people say things like, well, Christianity is ultimately not a religion. It's, it's a relationship with a loving God. Okay, but we're human. We're part of that global community, and we will take Christianity and turn it into a religion at every given opportunity. It's what we do. Um, and so when you read a passage like this, it's different. It's distinct. It tells us something other than A plus B equals C. What it says is that by the grace of God, C, that thing you desire from God, it's yours. The equation starts with C. C is yours. Grace, forgiveness, love, peace, acceptance, eternal belonging, fellowship, joy, gladness, relief, all of the above. C is yours. Because the Messiah performed A and B on your behalf. So even even an idiot like me can can like receive the grace of God because it's not based on how smart I am, how pious I am, how generous I am, or anything else that I do. The beauty and power of that is when we really absorb that truth that C is ours because of what Christ has done on our behalf, because he has performed A and B for us, it makes us generous and sincere in our faith. It, it makes us do many of the things that we see done in religions around the world. But this religion is different. It's not, in fact, a religion. It's a relationship with a living and loving God. And so that's where Isaiah takes us in chapter 35. And this concept that because God has performed all the necessary components for our salvation through the Messiah, we can simply grow, blossom, bear fruit, or in a word, flourish spiritually. We can thrive as his children 
because of his love for us and the work that his son carried out on the cross on our behalf. And so that's where we begin in this passage is with the question, how is it that we thrive in relationship to the Messiah? What does God want from us, for us, in us, through us, according to this chapter of his word? Well, first and foremost, God wants us to hold out hope in the Messiah. This is the beginning of our relationship with him, to consider the devastation that our sin brings about in our lives and to know that that devastation is not what defines us. And if, if you're like me, there are two sources of, de- of the devastation of sin in my life, and I, I think you're probably in the same boat. There's the devastation of my own sin, the separation that that causes in my own human relationships and in my relationship with God. Then there's the devastation of the sins of others, things that have been committed against me or that I feel have been committed against me that set me apart. They make me angry or resentful or jealous or otherwise put me at odds with the people around me. And God says he doesn't want us to be defined by the devastation of sin. He wants to come to us in the devastation of sin and change our hearts, our minds, our souls to a new perspective, perspective of hope. So we tend to look at the devastation and, I don't know, weep, right? And we want to stay focused on the, the difficulty that's, that's dragging us down. And God says, look up and look beyond because the hope of my Messiah is real. That devastation is not what defines you. Whether it was your sin or that of someone else, I will deal with that. I will fully deal with that sin on the cross. And I will lead you to a new place. And so that new place is set before us here. So we are to look to this hope of the Messiah in the face of our devastation. God doesn't want you to live here. He, he knows you're going to go through difficult times. He's not promising that you'll never experience pain. He is simply saying, this pain, this real pain, it's not your ultimate truth. So in the face of devastation, desolation, we are to look to the hope of the Messiah out of our emptiness and our weakness. If you look at verses 1 and 2, sorry, verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. God is speaking to the broken, to the weakened, to the diminished, to the devastated. And he's saying, don't let that devastation be your defining truth. Look to the hope of the Messiah in your emptiness, 
and in your weakness, in your anxiety, and your fear. This is where God does his best work. Because light is never more appreciated than when you are in darkness. And so when that light of hope and love breaks forth into your reality, you see, you respond, you have hope. And that is what God wants for you, that, it, that you are to hope in the face of the desolation that life brings, and you are to hope for the sake of God's glory. Sounds like a funny purpose to have, right? So you're devastated by life, and God says, you need to look up because it glorifies me when you look up. Well, you have to think about it this way. What is the highest and greatest good in the universe? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Love. And the Bible says that God is love. Right? So you could, you could fill that either way. The highest and greatest good in the universe is love. God is love. Therefore, the highest and greatest good in the universe is God or love. They're both true, right? So if that is the case, what does our hearts good? What is the highest and best thing that our hearts can focus upon? God, love, and specifically God's love. And so that is why Isaiah in verses 2 and 4 really talk about, where is it? The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. These are places that are about to be devastated. They're about to be overrun by foreign armies. They're about to be laid waste. And from that place of desolation, God promises that his glory will shine. He does his best work in the places of devastation in our lives, in our hearts, and in our souls. And so we are to look to the hope of the Messiah for the sake of God's glory and there to see the signs of new life. Verse 1 talks about a crocus. If you are from South Texas and you have only ever lived in South Texas, you have no idea what a crocus is. All right? Uh, my wife and I had the privilege of living in uh, St. Louis, Missouri when we first got married. Our oldest daughter was born in misery, um, and uh, we had this tiny little house, German-style architecture, because there's a lot of Germans in the history of St. Louis. Uh, you might have heard of one of them, Augustus Bush. You've heard of that guy? Okay, we'll keep going. Um, so we had this tiny little 
house on a skinny little lot, and uh, the house was built in 1928. Can you say money trap? We were dumb enough to buy it. We did. It was great, actually. We loved that house. But in the front yard, unbeknownst to us, I think we bought the house in October. And so we had, fall had already started, everything was dead. We had no idea what the people ahead of us had planted there. And St. Louis gets this weird thing called snow. And it, it covers the ground with a little white blanket and it's really cold and it looks like fun. It's not fun. Um, but the snow would cover the ground and then some, at some point, usually still in February, as the snow started melting, that it's still snow covering the ground, but just a little bit has started to melt and seep into the ground, and that little amount of water causes a flower from the plant, a plant called the crocus, to push through the snow and bloom. And it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen, right? There's just this, this bleakness of winter and this pop this little bitty sprout, and it happens like you don't see it until it blooms. It just comes right out and opens up and says, joy is here. Winter is about to be over. Regardless of what the groundhog says, there is hope. And I love the use of that metaphor by Isaiah in this passage, that when this, this blanket of desolation is covering your life, your world, your reality, pop, bloom, up comes hope. That we can have this hope of the Messiah even in the bleakness of winter. We are to see the signs of new life in our hearts, in the world around us, and we are to find again the joy of our salvation. If you look at the, the people of Israel and their history as if they are one person, so if you just use the metaphor of Israel as a metaphor for yourself, right? There's, there's creation, there's the emergence of, of a relationship with God, an understanding of right and wrong, and then there's this wild departure from all of it that just goes literally off the deep end of, of morality. And then there's the devastation that that sin causes in, in the separation between Israel and their God and, the, and Israel and themselves as their own neighbors. And eventually that devastation, that separation leads to the, the overrunning of the kingdom by a foreign army, the carrying off of all the wealth and all the intelligentsia of Israel, and there's nothing left. The city is laid waste, the city of Jerusalem. The temple is torn down stone by stone. There is nothing but despair. And then pop. God raises up a king named Cyrus who will give permission to the people of Israel to return to rebuild, to begin the process of restoring their relationship with God. That 
little crocus through the snow is seen. Isaiah predicts it. He says, this is how God works. He comes through in the most difficult times to restore hope. And so we begin this process of thriving spiritually with looking to the hope of the Messiah, even amid our devastation and for the sake of God's glory. And then Isaiah turns our hearts in verse 5 to the call to see the light of the Messiah. So, just really quick, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Do you remember anywhere else in Scripture where this is quoted? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, come on. Thank you. That's what an elder does right there. Um, so John the Baptist is, has heard about this guy, Jesus. And he, they're actually cousins, weirdly enough. And John sends some of his disciples to Jesus to say, Hey, are you the guy that, like, that's going to like deal with sin for God's people. Are you, are you him? And instead of just saying, yeah, it's me, Jesus says, go back and tell your leader, John, that the blind see, that the deaf can hear. And he literally, Jesus quotes this passage in Isaiah. He is, he is effectively saying, not just yes, very yes. I am he. I am the one. And go tell your leader that it's true, that it's coming true, that all of the prophecy that was set forth before this time is being fulfilled in your sight. So that is the light of the Messiah, and it shines into our limitations, our blindness, our deafness. You've been there. Um, I've been there. Where God was trying to get his word, his love, his grace through to me, I wasn't listening. I couldn't see it. And then, somehow... By the power of his spirit, things change. And my eyes open, and my ears can hear, and my soul can begin to hope again. We are to see the light of the Messiah in the face of our limitations. We're to open our eyes and ears, and we're to let him convert our despair into joy. What a relief when spiritually, I've been in a place where I can't see and I can't hear. And I'm frustrated, probably with God, which is kind of funny if you think about it. And then he speaks, he moves, he shines his light, and I can see again. Not because of me, but because of him. What a change. What a transformation from darkness and despair to light and joy. 
this is what God wants for us, for, him to, for us to see the light of the Messiah in the face of our limitations and for the sake of our own renewal. So earlier in the passage, this restoration of hope was for the sake of God's glory. Now, Isaiah turns to the restoration of our souls. This water pouring forth into the desert, a spring breaking out of the ground. Any of you ever been to a place called Balmeray, Texas? Okay, there's a state park there, and there's a spring. So Balmeray sits in the middle of the high desert. About 30 minutes from there, if you want to, if you're young and stupid, you can take a snowboard and climb up to the top of a sand dune and ride the snowboard down the sand dunes. People do this. There's no ski lifts. I've walked up sand dunes before. It's not for this fat guy. So this is not my sport. I've never done this. Um, but there's pictures in the brochures for Balmeray, like of people skiing down sand dunes. It looks like a blast until you climb back up. Anyway, in the middle of this state park, in the middle of the high desert, and there's like nothing for as far as the eye can see in any direction, unless it's irrigated. But you look and you're driving up to it and there's this stand of cottonwood trees off in the distance. And it stands out, it's got some pop, because it's the only bright green in the entire landscape. And you get there and you see that the reason that these cottonwoods are thriving is because in the middle of the desert is this thing called the San Solomon Springs. You can put on a little scuba mask and dive down to the bottom, it's about 25 feet deep, and you can watch the sand in the bottom like just literally bubbling because of all the water. And we're talking millions of gallons a day of water coming out of the floor of the desert. They don't even know where it comes from, like Kansas or Minnesota or something. We don't know, right? But there it is. And then all around it, there's life. And there's a lake just downstream where the locals dammed up the flow. And then from that lake, they pump and irrigate farms all over the area. So you're driving through the desert, and there's this beautiful green cornfield. And you're like, how in the world? Well, it's from the streams in the desert. And this is the metaphor that Isaiah is using to talk about our spiritual health and life and, and hope that God will bring forth from those dry places in our souls the water of life. And there, we can not only find renewal, but we can quench, finally, our spiritual thirst. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And as our thirst is quenched, we can engage in our spiritual growth because there's water, the water of life, the hope, the love, 
the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is what makes us Christian, not that we perform A and B in order to obtain C from our deity, but that that Messiah did it all on the cross. He took the penalty of our sin upon himself undeservedly, willingly, out of love to bring us forgiveness, hope, and love eternal. And so we are to hold out hope in him. We are to see his light breaking forth into the darkness. And we are to return to the grace of the Messiah. So Isaiah turns in the last three verses of this chapter to tell us that there is a way, there is a path. Do you know what the earliest Christians were called in the Bible? The way. Christianity was called the way. And then it got to Antioch, and then they, they were called Christians for the first time because they had the holy hand grenade of Antioch. That's a Monty Python joke. It's a bad movie. Never, just never mind. It's a great movie that's a bad movie. It's a bad, great movie. Great, bad, never, whatever. Um, but those early Christians, they, they understood this that, that we just read, that Christianity is a way back to life, to hope, to the heart of God. And so we are to travel to return to the grace of God. We are to travel along this way, this highway that has been laid by the work of Christ, a highway that he built so that we can return. We are to return along the way that he has prepared in holiness and in redemption. And so let me try to be clear what Isaiah is saying here. He's not saying that you have to be holy in order to get on that highway. He's saying that those who travel that highway, that way, will, will by the natural incentive of their own hearts, want to be more righteous, more holy, better in all respects. That this is the way that leads us not just back to the heart of God, but towards becoming the men and women that God created us to be and that honestly we desire to be. Thank the Lord in heaven that he inspired these words to Isaiah. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Can I get an amen? amen. Where, who writes this stuff? Right? Like, so if I was trying to control your behavior, I wouldn't tell you, it's okay if you're an idiot, God still loves you. I would tell you, watch out, mind your P's and Q's, walk the straight path, do everything righteously and correctly and do it the way I tell you to do it, or you'll fall off the edge and die forever or whatever, right? That is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that all 
of the work of salvation is done for you by Jesus Christ on the cross. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are redeemed. You are restored. You have hope. You have life. And you can walk on this way that you don't deserve to be on. When you do, and the lights come on, you will begin to desire to, to walk in a way that is more righteous. That is the natural outcome of this pathway. But you're not put on the path because of your righteousness. That is ridiculous. And even if you completely blow it, guess what? God's already died for the forgiveness of your sins. You're covered. You're forgiven. You are free. So then I think over the course of, of human history and Christianity, the fear of the clergy is if, if, well, if we tell people that, they'll go crazy. Like they'll do whatever. There'll be chaos and anarchy and just insanity, right? Yeah. God is that bold. He says, the only thing you need is my love. You're forgiven, you're free, and here's the way. Will we fall down? Will we fail? Will we sin? Yes. But we're covered, we're forgiven, we're free. And so we are to walk along the way that he has prepared for us in holiness and in redemption in confidence, and in safety. We cannot mess this up. We're to walk along this way and walk toward and into the eternal joy that is ours in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are free. We are forgiven. We are the fellowship of the fools who do not belong on this way. And yet, here we are, as messed up as we could possibly be, and yet part of this eternal family that no one can take away from us, including ourselves. So let your soul sing. We had a fascinating discussion I've talked about this before, but a couple of weeks ago on our Tuesday night Zoom Bible study about singing and playing music and the ways in which when we do that and we really fully engage in that artistic expression, it, it sort of pushes out everything else that's going on in our minds, that that engagement sort of causes everything else to diminish as we focus on and express our, our love for God through music. And this is exactly what Isaiah is saying. Look, our problems are real. Our sins are real. The devastation is real. The pain is real. But in the midst of that, we can look up and beyond to that light, that hope, that salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we can have joy and we can sing. And when we do, 
those other realities diminish in proportion to what we have in Jesus Christ. And so we walk into our eternal joy, we let our souls sing, and we watch as our sorrows shrink. Somebody asked me last week, did Jesus quote from Isaiah all the time? And he was acutely interested in this idea that he was the fulfillment of all this prophecy. Listen to what he said to a woman who was broken and not anywhere close to righteousness. He said, whoever drinks the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That broken woman and the devastation of her sin was told there's water, there's hope, there's life, there's forgiveness, there is grace eternal that is yours in the Messiah. Tell me that Jesus wasn't thinking of Isaiah 35 when he said that. He is the fulfillment of every prophecy in the Old Testament. It's him. Can we pray? God, our Father, we marvel at your word and that you are the God who moves in the wake of our devastation to restore our hope, to shine the light of your love, to quench the thirst of our souls with the water of life, and to bring us to a place where we can experience the joy of our salvation and sing of your glory with our entire being. Father, we are thankful for the love, for the forgiveness, for the grace eternal that was poured out for us on the cross by the Messiah, your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.